You are now entering the transit zone. Welcome back to the Transit Zone. I'm Peter Clark in Melbourne, Australia. Margaret Kingston in Narang on the Gold Coast. And Tim Dunlop in Southbank in Melbourne. We acknowledge the traditional custodians of the lands on which we record this podcast, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation and the Agamba people of the Narang District. We pay respect to their elders. Hi, Tim. Hi, Margot. Hi, Peter. And Margot sitting up there in Queensland looking at us here in Melbourne, both Tim and I, are locked down. This is the first day of the re-lockdown. And I guess when we listen to this podcast in a few months' time, it will be placed in a, a much clearer historical context, Margot, because by then we'll have a, a clearer sense of what this new lockdown is going to do to squishing coronavirus infections around Melbourne. Oh, just a, a tragedy for Australia and a, a tragedy for Melbourne and her reputation. To think that Victoria, of all places, couldn't control the centrepiece of control in the quarantines. The fact that now Australia knows that that Melbourne has towers of public housing that looks like prisons, it looks like third world and hasn't fixed it. And then the need to just get over the anger, get over the panic and just make sure this works because we've done so much right. Just really praying for Melbourne and very, very pleased with the performance of Anastasia under enormous pressure. And Margot, I'm thinking back to an earlier Transit Zone podcast when, remember Dan Tien was having a slash at Daniel Andrews about the schools, remember that? And you did pass comment on partisanship and bipartisanship. Michael O'Brien, the local Liberal opposition leader, and his emetic sidekick Tim Smith have been slashing away all along and now of course they're doing crocodile tears and doing some faux unity offers to uh, to Daniel Andrews and the Labor government. So we haven't had that bipartisanship. We've had the opposition, the Liberal opposition, undermining and sniping the whole time through. That's the risk with this second wave, that people will focus on the anger and the blame I'm still of the opinion that basically people, yes, there's a time for accountability and there must be accountability, but overall people do not want the sniping and I think Morrison has got this right for quite a long time. It's just imperative that we have a a red-hot go at this. I think we will get over the panic. It's a terrible blow, but I think we will. I think we will. And I think Daniel Andrews is showing great leadership. He has now taken responsibility clearly for that what is now clear. Fancy outsourcing a key government function to protect the people from the possibility of an explosion in infections. I mean, to me, we're talking 20 years it's come to this where we have literally forgotten what the core role of government is. Many lessons to be learned, many lessons. And Let's learn them and let's fix it when we're out of this. Tim, your feelings and thoughts today, you and I are both in the same situation in home detention for real again. How are you feeling today? Not too bad, Peter. I'm sort of disappointed with the way things have developed down here. I'm actually much more comfortable with the fact that the whole city is on lockdown rather than just particular areas of it. I think there was some real equity issues around that closing down of the towers only for solidarity reasons apart from anything else. But just picking up on what Margot said, the real lessons that we should be learning here are much more fundamental than these new outbreaks. It's about how we do governance in general. And the outsourcing of the security in the quarantined hotels is just emblematic of bigger problem of that sort of outsourcing. And it's that sort of stuff that we really have to be looking at 
going forward. This isn't just a Melbourne problem. This is something that all governments around Australia, federal, state, at any level are facing. You know, I think we just have to get serious about stop talking about snapping back to something in the past and look at bouncing forward to something better in the future, which is why I'm really glad that we've got Simon Heimsacourt here today with us because he's very involved in one of those areas that is about reinventing the future, I guess. I'll be very curious to talk to him about those things. In the last edition of Transit Zone, as we all remember, our guest was Newcastle-based environmental climate change activist Georgina Woods. And that episode and we're very glad about this, had a strong listener response. So this time we're pursuing another strand of that crucial existential theme. Our guest, as you just said, Tim, in the transit zone this time is Simon Holmes-Accord, an energy and renewables expert and advocate, both theoretically and very practically in his own life. He's a senior advisor to the Climate and Energy College, a team of international climate and energy researchers at the University of Melbourne, and also sits on the board of the Smart Energy Council. And that's just the bare bones of Simon's CV. Welcome to the Transit Zone, Simon. Thank you very much, Peter Margo and Tim. Great to be on your show. Simon, as always, we're just bursting with questions for you, but the microphone is yours for the next few minutes. I've been interested in electricity for a very long time. Some would say I'm obsessed. When I was two and a half years old, I stuck a key in a PowerPoint and I fried my index finger and have a skin graft to remind me of it daily. As a kid, I played with electronics kits, computers, and precursors to the internet. And then at university, I studied computer science, artificial intelligence, and robotics. I'm really an engineer at heart. I've been environmentally aware for as long as I can remember. Some of my earliest memories are of planting trees on our family's farm south of Perth and visiting the beautiful Cary Forest in WA's southwest. We left the main roads to witness the destruction of those same forests, a memory that still fills me with deep sadness. After a stint as a software engineer in Silicon Valley during the dot-com era at the turn of the century, I returned to Australia in 2001 with my young family and became very involved in farm water and energy management. My wife and I bought a small farm in central Victoria and 16 years ago built a house totally off the grid back when solar power was considered alternative energy. Somehow I ended up chairing Australia's first community-owned wind farm near Dalesford, an amazing project that taught me so much about the intersection of energy, environment and community. Bringing together my passions, I've focused on energy's role in the climate challenge for much of the past 15 years. I 100% agree with the American journalist and climate commentator Eric Holthouse, who recently posted that he's shocked every day that everyone isn't obsessed about climate change. We are knowingly bringing about the end of a 10,000-year period of climate stability that gave rise to human civilization. We know climate is changing, and we know that it's going to negatively affect almost everyone alive now and in the future. We know why it's happening. We know how to mitigate it. We know the costs of mitigation are relatively modest and pale into insignificance compared with the costs in action. We also know that the reason we're dragging our feet is because our society is sick. Political tribalism and vested interests are riding roughshod over science and humanity's interests. I don't have all the answers, but for me, the biggest problem I can work on is climate change. And the biggest problem in that is decarbonizing the energy system. I'm comfortable at the intersection of engineering, economics, politics, investment, and communication. We're in the midst of a profound shift in our energy system. While we may have wondered in the past whether we'd ever embark on that journey, there's no longer any doubt. The transition is underway. Now it's just a matter of speed. While we're accelerating, not succeeding fast enough is the same as failing. And currently we're failing. 
Our society is like a massive ocean liner heading at full speed towards a dangerous reef. There's a path through the reef and it's wonderful on the other side, but we need a course correction. I've met hundreds, if not thousands of people across all walks of life working to turn the ship towards safety. And I'm pleased to be part of that massive effort. Simon, it's a terrific metaphor, the idea of the ocean liner. It catches that inertia. It captures a lot of what we're doing. I guess the denialism and people not wanting to look at the problem in the face. And I I do like the idea of the passage through. I hope you're right about what's on the other side. Could I ask you, from your expertise and knowledge, to give us a sense, a snapshot of today right here in Australia, looking at the interflows of both coal and fossil fueled energy flowing around our country and that coming from renewables, What's the balance? What's the big picture today in Australia between renewable energy in our system and fossil fueled energy? One thing we need to always keep in mind is that the electricity system is only part of the energy challenge. Only about 30% of global emissions come from electricity. A very large percentage of the rest comes from, I guess, the whole oil energy economy. But let's just talk about electricity because it's, it's a very important part of the picture. Right now in Australia, but within the next week or two, the national electricity market will hit 25% renewable over a 12-month period. give you an idea of where we've come from, back in 2001, we were about 5 to 7% renewables, and the Howard government introduced the renewable energy target. I'd love to understand how that came about, that we had a Liberal government put in place the renewable energy target, but it really is our most successful energy policy. Here we are in our 20th year of that policy, and we've grown from that 5 or 7% to 25% today, and it's accelerating. We'll be at about 33% within two years. It's been a remarkable, remarkably successful scheme, and it's built up a very large number of jobs and political support for continuing the transition. If we had a good baseline climate change policy federally, how much more quickly would it accelerate renewables so, switch? And, and we've, we don't have to imagine too much on that because AEMO, the Energy Market Authority, has done the hard yards for us on that. I think one of the best pieces of work that's least understood in Australia is the Integrated System Plan, which is a massive project that AEMO took on after the Finkel review in 2017. I spoke to someone from that project recently. They put 100 person years into the study in the last two years, $10 million a year of budget with a high degree of definition and very rigorous study. Imagine pathways or study pathways forward from where we are right now. They have a central scenario, business as usual scenario, which has us at 50% renewable by 2030 and about 76% by 2040. So that's decent speed, not as fast as the climate science would require, but certainly much, much faster than many Australians would have imagined possible a few years ago. They have another scenario called step change, which of the seven scenarios I believe they're publishing, it's the only Paris compliant one. It's the only scenario that charts our ocean liner through the safe passage. And that that has us at about 70% renewable by 2030 and 90% 3% renewable by 2040. The remarkable thing is not only does it fulfill all the requirements of keeping the lights on, but it's the least cost scenario to do so and only costs marginally more than business as usual. We know we've done a lot of work to show that that's absolutely possible. My own group at Melbourne University has run different scenarios of 200 to 500% renewables. What does it mean to be over 100% renewables? It means that we are exporting energy. We are, as a country, we are about 500% coal. We export four units of coal for every unit we use. 
We are about a bit under 200% food. We feed Australia and we feed almost two other Australias in our food exports. To be 500% renewable would mean powering all of our electrical needs in the country with renewables and then exporting four times that in various forms. So how do we export electricity? There are three basic ways. Some of the more exotic ways that we would have heard of recently is plans to export energy in the form of hydrogen, and we will eventually get there. Another one is to export it using undersea cables. And while that might have seen science fiction not long ago, there's a company, Sun Cable, backed by, by Mike Cannon-Brooks and Twiggy Forrest. They're right now planning the route for how a cable goes from Darwin all the way to Singapore. Massive undertaking, no new technology in it, but just at a scale we haven't seen before. The third way of exporting energy is in finished goods. We already do this in the form of aluminium. Aluminium is notoriously large user of electricity. Some people call aluminium congealed energy. We export about 20% of the power in Australia that's generated ends up in aluminium that we export overseas. So we can switch that from coal and end up ramping up those energy-intensive industries and ship our energy overseas. So at the moment, we ship iron ore and coal to other countries to turn into steel some of which makes its way back to our market, it makes a lot more sense for us to turn that iron ore into steel using Australian energy and then ship finished steel overseas. So three different ways we can export energy. And we've found out in our modelling that not only is it absolutely possible, but in doing so, we reduce the cost of energy and the reliability of our system for all Australians. So we increase our energy exports and reduce our emissions at the same time. Simon, I really want to examine our physical poles and wires system in Australia, what we call the grid, I suppose. Years ago, I was doing some reporting for Green and Practical, a, a program no longer on Radio National. I got to see the helmeted honeyeater, the orange-bellied parrot, and the mountain pygmy possum in the wild as part of the side benefits of doing that gig. But I did find myself down at Ceres Community Environment Park, not far down the road from us here, actually, and I stood at the foot of a very small wind turbine with a bloke who was showing me some new technology at that time about how they were converting the dirty power from the wind turbine so it was compatible with the grid, it was compatible to transfer it to our electricity grid. Of course, we've come a long way since then. We've had solar panels on our roof here for about 11 years now, and we send power out all the time. But we do hear a lot in the news about the susceptibility of the grid to too much renewables coming onto the grid. And of course, we're now seeing the emergence of really practical battery systems. As you look ahead, do you think we're going to leapfrog the physical system and perhaps see a decentralisation of energy generation and consumption in this country where off-grid becomes the norm? Is that a possibility and is that a likelihood? Good questions, Peter. Firstly, I want to talk about that evergreen story of where we've got you know, too much renewables coming in and, and we're being threatened with blackouts. It's a story we see about every three months in Australia and have been for years. And every one of them stems back from a, there'll be a kernel of truth. Generally, it'll be a report from the people running the grids saying, hey, there's this looming problem several years out from now. If we don't do anything about it, then we're going to have problems managing the grid. This is what we should do. The media generally stops before the this is what we should do step. I call them sort of trouble in paradise stories. Great clickbait to have a story saying those people who think that they're doing good, just watch, they're about to trip over. When really we've got these very well operating systems that anticipate the problems that are coming towards us and are working on the solutions to those problems long before they materialise. So you'll keep seeing those stories again and again. Public loves them. They must click through enough to 
convinced the editors that we should see them again. Whether whether our grid is going to become more and more islands or more interconnected, I'm sorry to say it's going to be a bit of both. There's some great examples from Western Australia where the grid operator is taking ultimately thousands of houses off the grid. We found that the houses at the very edge of grid are costing, in some cases, 100 times as much for them to manage those properties as ones that are closer into the into the city. They've found that it's much cheaper to give them batteries and panels, either in a standalone house or at a small community scale, maybe 10 houses. And there are plenty of examples at the edge of grid in Australia where I think we'll see that. But at the other end of the spectrum, we will see deeper interconnection between the states and between the major population centres. There's a new interconnector going in between South Australia and New South Wales. We're beefing up the interconnector between Queensland, New South Wales, New South Wales, Victoria, and a second interconnector down to Tasmania. This deeper interconnection makes our system more resilient and and it also brings down the cost of energy. It's a bit too glib to say that the wind's always blowing somewhere, but to a large degree, when there's a shortage of power in one region, it's very rare that there's shortage of power uh, across the system. So by being able to share power around, we can dramatically decrease the amount of spare capacity needed to keep the lights on. Can I ground this in coronavirus world? It sort of occurred to me that as people are sort of moving to self-reliance with growing their own veggies and buying their own chooks, with a sort of a more a self-reliant, almost survivalist mentality in coronavirus world, that we might see more and more people start to think about off-grid. Plus, of course, people moving to the regions to get away from the city. In terms of climate change activism and politics, what do you see as the main effect of coronavirus world on the contours of the struggle? So I've been off-grid on our farm for 16 years now, and I really enjoy it. But I'd say it's not really for the faint of heart. I've had to be really involved in our power system. We're in central Victoria. Days like today, there's not enough sun to run the house. Sometime today, I have to turn my generator on and run it for a couple of hours. Now, I could increase the number of solar panels. In fact, I did. I tripled the number of solar panels a couple of years ago, and that's dramatically reduced the amount of diesel I need to burn. I'm really happy about that. But if I want to go completely no diesel at all, I'm going to have to probably double my batteries and double my solar again. Now, the problem is with not being connected to my neighbours is I've got so much excess power. In summer, my batteries are often completely charged by 10 a.m. and I'm throwing the power away. If I had power cables to next door, I could share my excess power. So one of the problems with cutting the cord is that we cut the ability to share. If you have your own vegetable patch, when you have a lot of extra veggies, you can give them to your neighbour. I would love to do that now. People will generate more and more power on site. Australia has the record of the greatest number of, or the greatest penetration of rooftop solar in in the world. We are head and shoulders above the rest of the world. Solar panels are incredibly popular in Australia. That trend will continue. In fact, it's accelerating. Surprisingly, it's been accelerating through this corona period as well. But the the interconnection allows us to trade and allows us to not have to all have our own diesel generator for those periods when when we have lots of cloud and also allows us to not waste energy when we've got surplus, which I do for nine months of the year. The collapse in emissions during the first lockdown around the world has given us like a, a breathing space so we could really reimagine reimagine it and, and get to work on it now, the all-in-it-together type vibe transferring to climate change. On the other hand, we've got new pushes for, for gas and, and oil and, you know, just the usual, we've got to get, get back to work. I just wonder how you conceptualise how the challenges changed given the pandemic? So I think there are two different answers to that, depending on whether we're talking about globally or Australia. Both, of course. Well, these, they're quite different stories. In many countries, and, and the UK just came out 
yesterday with, with a great example of this. They're looking at the low carbon transition as being a necessary investment that we can pull forward and create an immense number of jobs. So they're embarking on a massive energy efficiency program, which will reduce emissions, reduce the amount of energy required, and reduce living costs for people, all at the same time creating lots of jobs. Every country in the world has people advocating for such a program, and many countries are looking at that. Australia, there are really impressed. There's been about a, a dozen solid reports in the last couple of months on what we can do using these twin challenges of economic reconstruction after corona and decarbonisation of the economy. How can we solve one with the other? And Australia, we at the moment are, are squandering this opportunity, at least federally. Federally, so far, all of those reports have landed on deaf ears and the government's running around in circles talking about gas-fed recovery. It simply won't happen. There's no likelihood that we're going to have a significant increase in gas production as a result of this. So we're just going to spend the next six to 12 months, as we always do in energy policy in Australia, running around in circles, doing nothing, squandering this opportunity. Fortunately, Australia is not just the Fed's state level. Every state energy minister is receptive on energy policy. It's inspiring when you hear them get together, the energy ministers, is that they are all on board with decarbonisation. We don't talk about this enough, but every state and territory in Australia has a zero net by 2050 agreement. ACT is more aggressive than that. And every minister is on board with a policy that we just can't seem to get any buy-in at all from the Fed. Simon, as someone who follows you on Twitter and sees you engage in these various discussions, one of the things that always comes up is nuclear power. What's your views on the role of nuclear in this, if it does have a role? Again, it's a different question whether we're talking about Australia or internationally. Internationally, I say that nuclear plays a reasonable role in keeping carbon down. I believe that role is going to shrink, not grow. 2006 was peak nuclear. We haven't generated more than what we did in 2006. And it's quite possible that we never will. In Australia, I don't see nuclear. I've been quite confident in betting that we won't see a role for nuclear in Australia. And we almost had nuclear in Australia in, in 1970-71. If you go up to Jarvis Bay, you can go. There's, there's a car park up there where you can go and see the foundations for Australia's first nuclear power plant. They cleared the ground and started building foundations, and then the project got canned. And one of the reasons it got canned is because it was completely outcompeted by coal. On economics alone, nuclear didn't stand up then. The economics have only got worse for nuclear and renewables have come in much cheaper. There's no economic case for it in Australia. There are no products that really meet the requirements of our grid. And while there are people developing new nuclear technologies, it's pretty well agreed that they're somewhere between 15 and 20 years from the Australian market. And by that point, the energy transition will be, will be locked in. Now, there are some Northern European countries, perhaps, that will want the energy security of having all of their generation in their own territory, and they may not have many other options. Countries like Finland or Sweden may want to always keep a toe in, in nuclear. There's just no economic case for it in Australia and likely never will be. I just constantly hear people, even quite senior journalists, for instance, writing about this sort of stuff, who constantly throw up nuclear. Why aren't they convinced by the sorts of arguments that you've just made? A couple of reasons. Firstly, there is a large degree of ignorance over the economics or the readiness of the nuclear sector to, to apply the product to Australia. I was fairly involved in the recent federal inquiry into, into nuclear in September last year, and I was floored by how many people who presented to, to the members, how many people talked about 
things like a small modular reactor and, and Gen 4 right. nuclear as, as if they exist. People talking about these technologies saying safer and they can fit on the back of a truck and there is not a single one of these products that they were talking about in the market. They exist as sketches. One of them is <laughs> in the middle of a licensing program and is a decade off having product. These are conceptual, but they're spoken about in the media as if they are real. So partly it's ignorance, but partly it's it's just part of a culture war. The idea that nuclear and coal are manly and you know wind and solar are airy-fairy bit tongue-in-cheek perhaps, but I, I'd like to blame the Greens a bit. In sort of 2007 or eight, when I was doing, starting to do a lot in, in the wind sector, every Greens MP would get a picture of themselves in front of a wind turbine. GetUp had a wind turbine in their logo for a little while. They became totems, yeah. totems for the left, pushing away the right. The right in Australia have been so childish that just having your opposition pose in front of something must mean that that thing is bad. Yeah, I'd like to blame the Greens for the, the polarisation so, of energy in Australia. Seems very reasonable. <laughs> yeah. No, we're all in this together, Simon. <laughs> You're in the Transit Zone. I'm Peter Clark with Mago Kingston, Tim Dunlop, and our guest today, energy and renewables expert and advocate Simon Holmes Accord. And we have an audio postcard from Joe Lynch. Joe is a 23-year-old Newcastle-born, Maitland-raised fine arts graduate who's been organising, protesting and facilitating for Newcastle's grassroots climate and environment movement since 2016. She's the current coordinator of the Hunter Community Environment Centre, where she and her colleagues are working on a campaign to reduce water pollution and safeguard biodiversity from the impacts of coal ash waste on Lake Macquarie and other waterways in that state. Vales Point and Airing coal-fired power stations both sit on the shores of Lake Macquarie or Awaba in the Hunter. Here's Joe. As a young person, I'm only really just beginning to learn about the special places of the world, the histories and secrets of the life forms, ecosystems and cycles that we coexist with. Being a network digital native and an environmental activist, I'm confronted daily by new and ongoing instances of loss of our natural heritage in the Hunter region I belong to and across the globe. This fosters a strange sense that something very important is being lost before there was even a chance to behold it, and I'm often subsumed in melancholy at the magnitude of environmental issues piling up. Australia's rushed transformation from a colony to a nation with a seat at the table in the global market has made us into a fast-paced, eliminative and extractive society, and it's got us into deep trouble. The palpable slowing down that came from the coronavirus pandemic gave us glimpses of what's possible when we're out of the way. Clean air and animals all over tentatively expanding their habitats. The way we usually interact with our environment is largely shaped by the big global economic machine, resulting in rushing and clashes. Rather than a clash, could we instead start to jostle, shuffle, yield and negotiate with our environments? The need for swiftness is also there, and at all levels, we must become keenly aware of opportunities to make intentional and strategic compromises that enable other species to recover from the impacts of our rampant occupation. Of course, tides are turning, and many exciting innovations are or are on the cusp of alleviating the burdens placed on our climate and biodiversity by outdated energy, transportation, housing and food systems. Technological developments on the renewable energy front shine brightly and I'm grateful to the many who have worked hard applying expertise to bring big visions to fruition and make these important solutions available. But technology on its own won't be able to deliver an environmental ethic or shift in perspective needed to fully address our challenge in the long run. The recent global climate strikes and the young people the world over stepping fervently into the movement foreshadow such shifts. 
but to expedite this process, opportunities and avenues for young people to nurture a deeper affinity to place need to be created and seized upon. I'm convinced that this affinity is what will enable the next generation to develop kinship with our environment, which will underpin the collective action needed to safeguard biodiversity and allow the secrets of our special places to be known. So, Simon, I, I just find these young people's contributions um, enormously confronting, impossibly idealistic. You sort of feel, oh, Jesus, us oldies, we, <laughs> we, we got we to step in and, and, and find a way to, to do our duty. Just sort of inspired by what George said last week about it's up to the people now. And, I mean, you know, you're in the entrepreneurial sector and she's in the grassroots sector in the hunter and there's kids running around and there's politicians trying. I mean, what's your response to, to Joe first and, and how do you see the, the growing of a very unusual coalition to make this happen in Australia? Good questions, Margot. Um, firstly, I, I am really impressed by how big the team is of people who are working on this problem. I heard a quote the other day, I think it's I think it was Henry Thoreau that said, for every thousand people hacking at the leaves of evil, one person is striking at the root. The problem is there are multiple roots. There's not one root. And I think it does take people hacking at the entire plant before we can make progress. Students making their voices heard on the streets. Look at the, the major superannuation companies recently that have divested from coal. First State Super announced this morning 100, $130 billion worth of assets and they're removing their investments from thermal coal. Um, we had Hester do this last week. There are more than 100 major financial institutions that have pulled away from thermal coal this year. Whether you're a student on the street or you're a banker, or I spoke recently to someone who was friends with a, with a human resources person in a major bank in Australia and said that there are, there are no analysts now in that bank who understand how to finance a new coal project. That's not accidental. That's, that's come from the top, that they just don't don't want to be doing that work anymore. So they're not, they're not even able to finance new projects in that particular bank. Recently, just over the last year or so, I've met dozens of people who have chosen to retire early or they've done, they've done well in some tech startup or they've been in some job, you know, engineering job that they didn't get much, much joy out of. And they've arranged their life affairs so that they can commit themselves to this problem going forward full time. I'm inspired a lot by a 20th century thinker, Buckminster Fuller. There was a time when a lot of people knew his, knew his name, but he's sort of fading a bit from memory. But he, he used to talk about himself as a trim tab. And, and this has always, always got me this, this analogy. So you've got a massive ocean liner, notoriously difficult to turn these things around. At the very end, there's this huge rudder. The rudder might be 15 feet long. And it's almost impossible to turn this rudder. When the ocean liner is going at full speed, it's almost impossible to turn that rudder because of the, the massive wall of water going past it either way. But at the very end of the rudder, there's a thing called a trim tab. It's only about six inches long. And when that trim tab turns very slightly, it creates a low-pressure region. As the water pushes against the trim tab, it creates a region that makes it much easier to move the whole rudder around. Buckminster Fuller encouraged us all to think of ourselves as trim tabs. So we might not be able to ourselves turn the ship around. In fact, no one person can turn the ship around. But if you can apply the right amount of change at the right time in the right place and you push against the force, you can create pressure that moves the rudder that then moves the tank around. I think a lot about you know, how can I be the trim tab in this situation? And I think you know, a lot of these you know, young idealists are trim tabs. Not sure which one of them is going to be is going to find that they've been hacking at the roots of evil, but some of them will. Some of the, some of them will, and they're going to be the trim tab that helps us turn the ship around.
this just gave me such a huge memory of 2007 <laughs> when I and many other people thought the trim tab had worked its magic. We had Sir Nicholas yeah. Stern, the economist, saying that um, it's much cheaper to attack climate change and let it go. We had Al Gore's Inconvenient Truth. We had a, a mass movement in Australia and we had John Howard going to the election with an ETS. 13 years on, that trim tab action fails. So what are the forces that stop that and how do we knock them over? Your efforts with various independents, is that maybe a way through this to encourage more independence into the system? Is that how you're thinking about exerting that pressure at that yeah. level? Yes. So a good example of, of the trim tab effect, the project, well, I worked alongside Margot in the last federal election on the Independence Day movement. I'm not sure that one person can change the entire government <laughs> right now, but certainly we saw that one independent uh, or two um, can make a huge difference in Parliament. Uh, if we look back to 2010 to 13, the two independents for the, the crossbench pushed Labor into a much stronger carbon policy than they were going to have before that 2010 hung Parliament. So we've, we've seen that one or two independence on the crossbench can be the trim tab that moves the whole parliament and therefore moves the country around. Cathy McGowan in, in Indi started off as a, as a small movement of concerted individuals who thought we don't have to have a horrible helicoptered in member of parliament representing us. We can actually have a true local representing our true interests. A small group of people became a trim tab that moved an electorate that moved the country. And we've seen sparks of, of, of what can happen when we have genuine independence on the crossbench act like representatives are supposed to act in, in, in democracies, right? They, they go back to their electorates and they ask what, you know, and they listen to the people and they take those views and they represent them federally. I was shocked a few years ago when I first sort of started becoming politically engaged to discover how few conscience votes there's been in Australia. 30 conscience votes in the last 60 years. I don't think most Australians know that, that, that their representatives are not representing them. They're following the orders of the party whip. I love this new opportunity that's been proven out many times now, that locals, when they get their act together, can create change to get a genuine local member. And those local members, not always, but most of them, uh, have been great representatives for their region and have made sensible decisions. Just thinking across the, the MPs we've had as, as independents, they truly are uh, are independent of, uh, of of the vested interests that drive Australian politics. So I think that's a way we can all be trim tabs is to try to get local members who are independent. And I think that goes back to something Joe said about you know getting that uh, an affinity to your place, your home. It might have been George said a lot of people can't think in abstract big picture terms, but when it comes to their home being threatened by you know yeah. CSG or or coal or whatever. And I just noticed um, Helen Haynes, Cathy's successor, is consulting with the community and coming up with an INDI plan to be energy self-sufficient and to go into renewals. And so you can you can sort of see how this could really could really factor into your your trim tab thing if we if we get m much more of it local. The thing in my career that I'm most proud of is the Hepburn Wind project. I got involved quite accidentally. Hepburn Wind is, is Australia's first community-owned wind farm just outside of Dalesford in central Victoria. I was walking down the street one Saturday morning and came across a card table with uh, a guy behind it, Pierre Bernard. Pierre's a local builder, builds straw bale houses, very, very committed to having the lightest footprint on the landscape possible. He grew up in Denmark where 
uh, almost everyone has a relationship with a wind farm, either living near it or as a, uh, as a shareholder of it. And the majority of wind energy in Denmark, at least uh, yeah, five years ago before the massive offshore projects, but, but of, of the onshore turbines in Denmark, the majority are owned by communities. Pierre had this idea that we in Dalesford shouldn't be buying our power from coal power stations 200 kilometres away when we live in an incredibly windy area. On his card table on the main street, he had uh, a wind atlas showing we're in that windiest part of Victoria. He had a diagram showing how we how the structure of a community wind farm might work, that we would pool our money, build a turbine, sell our electricity into the grid, uh, and then money would flow back to the community and to shareholders. And then he had a sign-up sheet on the right-hand side, and I, I was about the 300th person to put my name on that list. When the project had about 500 members and had a planning permit. We got together for a, for a meeting to decide whether we were going to go ahead and build this thing. And I don't quite know how it happened, but I came out as the chair of, of that group at the, from the meeting and spent five years building the project. It was an amazing learning experience. We had to raise a lot of money from the community. In the end, 2,000 people put in just shy of $10 million. We built a two-turbine wind farm, uh, and it generates as much power as 2,000 homes use, which is all of Dalesford and most of Hepburn Springs. You know, this community got together and built a project that over the course of a year generates as much power as, as the town uses nearby. During that project, I learned a lot about the engineering of renewable energy, about the economics, about community engagement, about addressing myths. There was certainly, at that stage in Victoria, there was quite active opposition. The more people knew about it, the less opposition there was. Our project inoculated Dalesford from the campaigns of, of nonsense that were quite prevalent at the time. Two questions. What's the balance between government funding and private investment in this? And then overall, in terms of that private investment, non-government money, is that sort of cooperative model the way that we should go? There's a clash between the centrality of a, of a profit motive with sound ecological outcomes. There's very little government money, government investment in renewables uh, in Australia. The state government level, the Queensland government owns the generators there in government-owned businesses. But in, in states like Victoria, South Australia, New South Wales, they're completely deregulated. The state doesn't own, isn't investing in renewables. We do have the Snowy River, the Snowy Hydro Scheme, which is owned by the Commonwealth Government. Government has you know, and is investing significantly in Snowy 2.0. But in general, almost all the investment in Australia that's happened over the last two decades has been, has been by the private sector. Unfortunately for communities, it's very difficult to compete against big money here either superannuation firms or large multinationals. You know, renewables work very well at huge scale. So our, our two-turbine wind farm, we're in a very tough position in the market in that we were about a 1,000 times bigger than a, a big home system, but we were about 100 times smaller than what businesses would do. So we're sitting in this uncomfortable middle ground where it's difficult to find expertise that can help you, difficult to find contractors and banks that understand working in, the, in that space. In a number of countries, they've created special space in the market for community projects. I've advocated for many years that the benefits of doing that are great, and I'm really glad that Helen Hayes is really running hard on this idea of creating space in the market for communities to invest and contribute to the energy transition. It is very difficult in Australia when you know, the average projects now are, are in the hundreds of millions, um, if not to billions of dollars, whereas we nearly killed ourselves over five years trying to raise $10, $10 million. It was a very, very hard ask. Lots of community solar farms being built around the country that are at a much smaller scale, like $1 to $2 million. People are even getting some really great projects off the ground where 
100 people putting in for a $30,000 system on a local sports club. There's some great projects, micro scale. Simon, my daughter and her husband live in a not a very high-rise apartment building. That's where their apartment is, only about three storeys. They can't get solar power there. They just can't get it organised. Imagine the higher rise. And, of course, we are seeing densification of the city now. What about tenants and people in high-rise apartments? Are they just blocked out from using alternative energies? Well, firstly, I think that's something we really have to address, that not long ago, solar was an alternative technology and people were dabbling around the edges. So people were doing it for love, not money. For five, six, seven years in Australia, you've been mad. If you if you own a north-facing roof, you're mad not to have solar and you're basically burning money if you don't have solar on a north-facing roof. But there's a big asterisk and that's that a lot of Australians don't own a north-facing roof. You're either a renter or living in an apartment, as, as you say. The opportunity to own your own energy should be a should be a right, not a privilege. There are real real equity issues in some of the population being able to have close to zero. I know a lot of people who have zero electricity bill because they put solar on their roof. Then you've got a, a number of, you know, quite a significant number of Australians who don't have that opportunity. There are many countries where they have instituted schemes where people can own part of a solar solar garden, I think some call it. So you own a share in a solar garden. It might be in the same neighbourhood or it could be in a sunny part of the state and you own a share of that and it nets off on your bill and it's a, it's a form of providing, I guess, equal access to solar. But I think it's something we really we do need to address, bringing equity into the you know, ability to own solar panels. Simon, we saw opposition leader, Labour opposition leader, Anthony Albanese, just recently at the National Press Club, make what looked like an assertive speech about energy and climate change, but really waving the white flag at the same time, offering to be bipartisan with the coalition government on all this, including climate change. Of course, we've got Matt Canavan and his ilk, particularly from the Liberal National Party in Queensland, where Margot is really pushing hard for more coal-fired power stations and, of course, the Galilee Basin, etc. Can you imagine, just looking ahead the next couple of years, that we will get taxpayer-subsidised coal-fired power stations in Australia? Is that really a possibility? bearing in mind what we've just been talking about, and also bearing in mind that ratio you gave us at the beginning of the podcast about uh, what we use domestically and what we export in the way of coal. So we won't get new coal power stations in Australia. I've offered Matt Canavan and Barnaby Joyce 100 to 1 odd bottle of wine, 100 to 1 odds that we won't. Neither of them have taken me up on it. I'm very confident we won't because, firstly, the economics are so bad for new coal. But now people say, what, what if the government provides a big fat subsidy to it? Look, I think the government is very good at throwing short, sharp amounts of money at, at hopeless causes. Throw 100 million here or 300 million there to build and operate a coal-fired power station and then indemnify it from, from any carbon liability for its 30-year life or so. That takes billions and it has to happen over a long period of time. People ask me, um, uh, how long does it take to build a coal power station? And I'll quickly answer that it takes three electoral cycles. And the coal-fired power station would be an albatross around someone's electoral neck every one of those elections. It's not going to happen in Australia. The economics are so bad, and I don't think the government is set up to subsidise something or take the, the political damage of doing so for the next 15 years or so before it could operate. So I, I think Albo's, the olive branch, I think it's a pretty cynical, cynical political move. It was just to remind us that there is clear air between Labor and the coalition on climate policy. You know, Albo just wanted, us to, wanted to remind us that the coalition is completely unreceptive to any sensible moves on climate policy. Simon, that's been a fascinating discussion. It's so good to have you in the transit zone today. 
before we all part company again today. We, we like to soothe our souls by just swapping notes on what we're reading, what we're listening to in music, what we've seen great on the television or in the cinema. So what's caught your fancy over the last week or so? Over the last couple of weeks, there are two podcasts I've been filling my driving and, and dog walking time with. There's a fantastic podcast called Boomtown by a, a Texas journalist who grew up in the Permian Basin, which is one of the areas of, of massive shale gas extraction and, and oil extraction in the US. Boomtown is about an 11-part series where he talks about the social, the economic, labor sides of the shale gas boom and now bust. Boomtown, I'd really recommend that. I binge listen to Republicans defeating Trump. Many, yes! many on Twitter uh, and Facebook. I love it. I love it. <laughs> the folks behind the, the, yeah, Lincoln, yeah. the Lincoln Project. Yeah. I'm finding the Never Trump podcasts more rigorous, more dark, more passionate than the, the Democrats. Oh, those, yeah, the Democrats. Democrats. Oh, I'll tell you what, oh, The yeah. Dispatch yeah. is a great podcast and The Bulwark is a great podcast, both Never Trump outfits that have broken away from um, National Review. Hearing smart, experienced, articulate people focusing back on values yep. Yep. rather than tribalism, I think it's a lesson, a lesson for everyone is to try to... To, to work out what, how, how bad does the behaviour of your tribe need to get before you're prepared to set, to stand up publicly and say, uh, these these people don't represent my values, and and these people are putting everything on the line. I think they're doing a fantastic fantastic job. Most of my reading time is on energy market reports and uh, you know what's what's happening in our grid and what's happening around the world. So I'm podcast for expanding my uh, interest, reading for depthening my expertise. While you've got the floor, Margot, I know you're on the very brink now of leaving your home, which has been your home for a yep. long time, heading to a new yep. home, a new, a new bit of paradise in the hinterland there of New South Wales. But what yep. have you been watching, listening to, enjoying? I was very affected the day before yesterday and, and just spent two hours watching the, the Daniel Andrews press conference and the, and the various commentary and it, it's, just, it's just so tragic. And, you know, I thought, oh, this is, I'm, I'm feeling very shaky. So I've gone straight into escapism. IVU's got just fantastic series of Agatha Christie. I love Agatha Christie. I've got all the books. I've got all the books on her and everything. It's a BBC very noir sort of version of it. And I've just started watching Pale Horse. Anyone who just needs to just chill, go Agatha on, on iView. When in doubt, go for the mysteries. And I've done a bit of that too. I, <laughs> I'm a bit of a, a, a bit late to this party, Mystery Road. So I've been watching the second series of Mystery Road, drawn by Warwick Thornton and, and Wayne Blair, great Indigenous film and television makers, after, of course, watching The Beach, the Warwick Thornton chronicle of his time on the beach there on the Dampier Peninsula. Beautifully done. I mean, the story is almost inconsequential to me, the landscape. And then I was inspired to check out Goldstone, which is Ivan Sent. And Goldstone is stunning. It's it's filmed out there beyond Winton, Margot, in uh, that amazing yep. country, Middleton. Yep, watch that. Vast landscapes. And he uses landscape in this. He, the film sets are just sort of demountables spread across this landscape and linked together by the filmic language. Just remarkable stuff. I loved it. And uh, I'm going to go and check out the the 2013 Mystery Road film as well on iTunes. I'm going to just absorb all that. So I'm probably doing the escapist thing too, but thoroughly enjoying the use of landscape as a character by these great directors. Worth checking out perhaps the article in the correspondent by that Dutch historian, Rutger Bregman. It's called The Neoliberal Era is Ending. What comes next? A bit of a sub-theme here perhaps that we'll dig into further. In fact, I'm going to make it required reading for future podcasts here in the Transit Zone. Okay. Uh, and also a bit of a spotlight <laughs> on that radical economist, Marianne. 
Mariana Mazzucato. So that makes very good reading. Musically, I'm I'm finding myself on uh, YouTube just going back into the 60s and, and folk music. Connection and to home. All that stuff. Connection and to home. It's striking a... It's striking a chord, and I'm finding some very primal responses when I hear certain little riffs and cadences in that singing. And yeah, perhaps I am going home a bit more. I go in some of that music. The '60s folk music is is still got a lot of power for me. So there you go, Tim. I'm sort of buried in a book at the moment, which is I stumbled across called "Blood Orchid" by an American writer called Charles Bowden. And it's part of, I think there's about six books in the series. And the subtitle is An Unnatural History of America. He's a journalist who travelled around America during the, I guess, the 80s and 90s, writing about the role of violence, really, in, in American society. But he writes in this really kind of poetic way, actually, the whole blood orchid thing, which is the name of the book, is this metaphor that runs through the whole thing. He talks about how orchids are kind of predatory plants, etc., etc. But it, it's completely enthralling. I'd highly recommend it. In terms of TV and stuff, the, the thing that we got buried in recently was the most recent series of Das Boot, the German show set in the Second World War, okay. ostensibly about a submarine crew on the German side. It's, it's actually mainly set in occupied France, it's an extraordinary show in terms of it deals with issues that are way too familiar to us in this day and age. What values do you actually have and how far are you willing to go to protect them? So the issues around hiding Jewish members of the community, etc., um, and who's willing to do that and who isn't willing to do that. It's the nature of the discussions the characters have with themselves about making those decisions that I just found incredibly moving and realistic in that you could actually imagine yourself, yeah. well, what decision yeah. would I make here? Would I, you know, would I risk my life for these people or would I not sort of thing? I know that I should, but would I? Mm. Yeah, so I, I think it's beautifully done. And the periscope seems just the right metaphor for coronavirus world, particularly as we're in lockdown here in <laughs> Melbourne, having a peek out at the world and hoping it's all going to end eventually. Yes. <laughs> Simon Holmes, of course, terrific to have you in the transit zone. A really stimulating discussion too, giving us lots of food for thought, and I hope our listeners, thank you so much for being with us in the transit zone this time. Thanks, Peter Margo. Thanks, Tim. Thank you, Simon. It's a real pleasure. Thanks, Simon. Really appreciate it. And thank you, Margot. Thank you, Tim. Uh, catch you in the zone next time. Bye. Thanks very much, Peter. We'll see you soon. Now, you can follow this Transit Zone podcast on Twitter at Transit Zone Pod. At Transit Zone Pod, that's our Twitter handle. These podcasts are searchable and you can subscribe too at Spotify and Apple Podcasts. If you have any comments on this or any of our podcasts, Questions you'd like asked or coronavirus world topics for all of us to explore here in the Transit Zone, please email us at transitzonepod at gmail.com. You can send us brief audio postcards as well. If you are or have been working from home during the COVID-19 crisis, we'd love to hear from you via email or audio. We're preparing podcasts on this topic. Send your thoughts, experiences, analyses to transitzonepod at gmail.com. That's transitzonepod at gmail.com. 
I'm Peter Clark in Melbourne, Australia, for the Transit Zone team, Tim Dunlop and Margot Kingston. Thanks for being with us, and we'll catch you next time right here in the Transit Zone. You are now leaving the Transit Zone.